Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 once again. Hope you're having a good Memorial Day weekend, the strangest one probably on record. Um, if you're counting at home, this is now the 11th Sunday that we have not been able to gather as a church. Um, and just thinking back to that weekend in March and that decision of when we had to cancel, uh, man, just no chance any of us thought that we would still be in this setup Memorial Day weekend. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, in God's wisdom, uh, it's better that we didn't know that at the time and just trust Him each step of the way. But um, although I got to say, just kind of looking around, there's about as many people here as there normally is on a Memorial Day weekend. So uh, it's, for once, it does not feel that much different. But um, I'm glad that you are still tuning in. And I uh, just want to assure you uh, again that we will be back. And um, God is still building his church and working within it as we speak. I hope you see him working. I hope you're looking for him, um, trying to understand what he's just continually teaching you, teaching us, um, and just uh, drawing you close to himself. Um, but one thing that my parents would always tell me uh, uh, about myself when I was little is that the family kind of grew to new not to ever ask me about a movie or a book that I recently watched or read because I would take forever to share and I would inevitably always blow the ending. Um, and uh, just recently finding that God in his sense of humor, uh, I'm sure, uh, has given our oldest son, Caden, this same glorious quality that I apparently had. Um, Rochelle and I have increasingly noticed across this quarantine that if we ask Caden to tell us about a show or a book or even a conversation he's had with somebody, he will give you exactly what you asked for, and he will give you the entire thing, and he'll get started and say, okay, well, it began like this, opening credits, first pages, somehow in his mind, he can replay everything back nearly word for word, and uh, man, we love him, but it can be brutal, and Rochelle and I will be like, all right, come on, just, just sum it up for us. Just like speed it up a little bit. But, um, but he hasn't figured that one out yet. And I know some of you are like, okay, pastor, you haven't exactly outgrown the long-windedness uh, yourself. And I, uh, I just want to let you know I received that, and you're probably right. But do you know who was good at summing up things in very concise and memorable ways? It was Jesus. And we see it often in the New Testament, but I think most notably in Matthew chapter 22, uh, it's a scene where the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to kind of corner him into his own statements. And so they send a lawyer to him to ask, um, hey, what is the greatest commandment in the law? There are exactly 613 laws in the Old Testament. Not 612, not 614, 613. And they want to know Jesus which one's the greatest? And Jesus' answer is, in a way, the summary of the Ten Commandments, or as Exodus 20 calls them, the Ten Words. The words that regu regulate a father's covenantal promise to his son, the people of Israel. But Jesus doesn't give all of Exodus 20. He sums it up like this. Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, represented by the ten words, rests on a love for God 
and a love for neighbor. And in saying this, Jesus affirms what we saw last week, that the ten words still matter because a love for God and a love for neighbor still matters. And this is the breakdown of the ten words. The, the first four that we saw last week reveal a love for God. And now the final six, a love for neighbor. And while all ten are surely just as relevant today as they were the day they were given, I think these final six, you will find that they um, especially cut right to the core of our everyday lives, right? They have categories like family and violence and sexuality and relationships and material possessions and our words and our desires. Nothing is left untouched. So let's just dig right in and keep going where we left off. We're in Exodus 20. And we will start with verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Word number five. Honor your father and mother. Uh, This word, along with word number four that we saw last week, remember the Sabbath, are the only two that are a a positive imperative, a a do instead of a don't. And and there is a stance out there that this fifth word belongs in the kind of love God category as opposed to love your neighbor. Uh, And the reason is because this has to do with authority and and, and the word honor kind of indicates a hierarchy. Uh, So so some people are just deserving of honor. um, And and the honor that is due to parents is a reflection of the honor that Israel is called to give God as the ultimate father. Um, But honestly, really, uh, it's not that important whether you think the breakdown of the ten words are five and five or four and six because either way this is what this is kind of like the hinge word the word that segues from love of God to love of neighbor but just as the third word where we learned that our names are the first thing we receive so now in the fifth word our parents are the first form of worldly authority that we all have It's not an absolute authority, either in the Bible or now, right? Because uh, if we do have parents who who command us to go against God, we are called to disobey them. But overall, big picture, authority in the Bible is seen as a good thing. It's seen as a right thing. And I just think that in the church today, um, we, we, we just generally have a harder time digesting this fifth word, a harder time than the ancient nation of Israel did, uh, because they were in a culture, as many Eastern cultures still are today, uh, where the family unit and, and parental authority is held, just let's be honest, in much higher regard than it's often held in our kind of Western, increasingly secularist culture. And especially now, a a submission to authority that begins with parents is increasingly seen as an enemy to our freedom, right? That we are a self-made people and we hold to the virtue of choice as the highest and best virtue. Peter Lightheart in his book, Ten Commandments, I referenced last week, often will do so again this week. He smartly notes 
that the modern command to question all authority is king. Except, of course, for the authoritative tone in that command to tell you to question all authority. And this command is not just hard for modern minds to swallow because of the authoritative piece, but it's actually commands, two commands that are given in the Hebrew singular. It's honor your father and honor your mother. Implying that in God's design, the parental unit consists of one man and one woman. Of course, we all know that that has to be true biologically, that every person that has ever lived has had one dad and one mom, but it's also true socially in God's design. That God is a God who values the first and most important institution of a society, the family. And history has shown that as the family goes, so, go, so goes the culture. Today, I think this fifth word can over, kind of get overemphasized to um, young children or kind of young age children that, that, that you should honor your parents, you should go to bed on time, and you shouldn't talk back to them, and you should honor a curfew that they set over you, etc. And those things are true, but it's not limited to just children through high school. In fact, I think you can make the argument that this is primarily geared towards adult children. Because when Jesus came to earth, um, no less than 10 times in the Gospel of John, he is talking about how he is honoring the will of his Father. So this command does not stop just the moment you turn 18. So if we kind of break this down, like what's it actually mean to honor your parents? Okay, so that, that can be a familiar phrase, but what's that actually mean? What are some other words we can use to describe what it looks like practically? Lightheart in his book says, uh, Jesus himself models five things. Praising your parents, meaning speaking well of them. Um, being slow to criticize them before others or grumble against them. Um, serving your parents. Having a posture of service, of being willing to do what needs to be done. Listening to your parents. To value their advice over your life. To value their words to you. Like Yahweh's words to Israel that we're walking through right now. It means trusting your parents, that, that they have your best interests in view. And then finally, submitting to our parents as our first worldly authority over our lives. And surely this looks different in every life of stage for us, but, but, the, but the word never gets canceled, it never gets annulled. Just as parents should never stop leading their children in the truth of the Lord, so children ought to heed word number five. Honor your father and mother. Let's keep going. It's kind of rapid fire from here. The next verse, Exodus 20, verses 13. You shall not murder. 
Word number six, do not murder. Okay, so again, we're moving into kind of a string of commands now that are very brief and direct. Um, In fact, in the Hebrew, this command is only two words. The verse literally says, not murder. Whereas other commands give more context or explanation, this is as direct and to the point as you can get. And I think it's primarily or partially because Moses has already wrote why murder is so wrong back in Genesis 9, verse 6, when God warned against the shedding of blood, quote, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Murder is wrong, not only because that's the law nearly everywhere, but it's wrong first and foremost because people are made in the image of God. And to take a life is to take an image bearer. Now, this is not the place or time to dig into the fact that later on, even in Exodus, let alone the rest of the Bible, that the Bible does condone the taking of life at certain points. Um, Again, the very next chapter, Exodus 21, you go into the New Testament, Romans 13, But those are places where the Lord permits and grants authority for taking life for the basis of punishing evil. But know that we are never called to take a life that the Lord doesn't permit. And so we can, I think, just agree that if you're hearing a voice telling you that God is telling you you should kill someone or take their life, um, that is not the Lord's voice. I will just kind of lay that down. But I imagine most, if not all, of you would be saying at this point, phew, like finally, here's a command I haven't broken. Like that kind of feels good, right? It's been a rough run up to this point, but not murder, check it off the list, clear of that one. Well, not so fast. In Matthew chapter 5, while preaching to a Jewish crowd who know their ten words, says this, hey, hey, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He says hatred, anger towards a brother is a form of murder. Maybe it's not how it's treated in the law of the land, but it certainly is in the law of God. Martin Luther famously said, we are capable of killing with our hearts, not just our hands. You see, anger towards someone diminishes their value as image bearers, just like murder does. It orients our hearts to think of them as less than, and we tear them down with our anger. And as often as it turns out, right, isn't this true that anger typically does more damage to the person who is angry than it does to the person they are angry with? And in that way, anger is a form of self-hatred, right? You are dehumanizing yourself when you're angry with someone else. And you're tarnishing yourself and your own image being made in the image of God. 
And so when Jesus came, amongst many other things, he reversed the curse of murder. Where the first murder in the Bible was between brothers in Genesis 4. The taking of life. Jesus came to restore life by giving his own. And in Christ, we are called to be givers, to be restorers, to be peacemakers. As Paul puts it, agents of reconciliation, not murderers, whether with our hands or our hearts. Word number six, no murder. And it keeps going. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Word number seven, No adultery. Again, in the Hebrew, two words, plain and simple. No adultery. And while I think at first glance, most people, I think, or at least I hope, would agree with the sentiment today that adultery is wrong and violating the marriage vows is generally seen as negative. Again, at least I hope that's the case. But the foundation beneath this word is one that many, if not most, will challenge in the year 2020. And the foundation beneath this word is that you do not have sexual autonomy to choose for yourself. And in a time where the phrase, quote, my body, my choice, is shouted from the rooftops by both men and women, where sexual desire is directed by, um, if it feels good, it must be right, and you can't tell me otherwise, man, this word is going to be challenged. But the Bible reveals what is true. That there is a limit on sexual autonomy. And today, even the most progressive advocates of sexuality would agree with that. That there is a line where even they would say, okay, that's not right. The Me Too movement, right, that has really um, uh, taken over in many ways over the last several years, rightly so, says that a man cannot just pursue their sexual desire where there is no consent or there's a power structure in place that can be abused so easily. We would not allow an adult and a minor to get married, even if they said, but it feels right. A group of ten people cannot get married in the name of the more love, the better. So the question is not if there should be a limit on sexual autonomy. Everyone agrees there's a limit. But the question is, where should that limit be? And further, who has the authority to draw that line? The biblical worldview, from a perspective of one who has no other gods except the one true God, gives the authority to the one who created sexuality, who created men and women, who created the union of marriage. And his design for sex is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. 
And in all the complexity of sexuality and gender that is out there today, the biblical worldview is actually far simpler than the constantly shifting ethic of the culture. Sex is encouraged and designed for biblical marriage, and it is prohibited anywhere outside of it. And just like the word on murder, Jesus takes it and elevates the meaning behind it in his Matthew 5 teaching. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, lust is a form of adultery in God's eyes. Because lust, just like adultery, just like murder, is an assault on the image of the person you are lusting for. And Jesus is showing that marriage is not merely a social institution, it is theological, right? It was instated by God. Marriage was the first union and first institution that began the family unit in Genesis chapter 2. And God instated marriage primarily to reflect and bear witness to the love between Christ and His church, between God and His chosen people. Which is why Jesus, who, who remained a single man his entire life, had such, such strong convictions about marriage because they reflected the covenant between He and His people. And so I ask you, whether or not you are married, does your attitude toward marriage reflect well on the Gospel? Let me ask it another way. What does your attitude on marriage say about God and His people? It matters. And then specifically for those who are married, I will be as bold as to say that your approach towards cultivating a healthy marriage tells the truth about your love for the gospel. To claim to love God and love the gospel and love the church while dishonoring and or neglecting your spouse is a serious contradiction. And it exposes the heart. It's a lot of weight behind a simple word. Word number seven, no adultery. Keep moving right along to the next verse. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Word number eight, no stealing. Um, if we think back to the ancient world, I, I think even more than now, um, people and their possessions were intimately linked. So stealing possessions was like murder and adultery. They were seen as a primarily as an assault upon people, upon image bearers, taking from them against their will. 
And today, we just don't really see possessions in that same way, right? I think due just to the economic status of many, uh, due to the sheer volume of stuff we have and how easily we can replace things with little to no problem, where if something is taken from you, you can order a new one on Amazon and have it at your doorstep in two days. So we might not be as attached to specific things in general compared to the ancient world, but I do think we are probably more materialistic than they were in the ancient world because we can get things so easily and, and just accumulate and consume and it becomes so much a part of how we view ourselves that what you have, what you own, what you can display to the world indicates your perception in other people's eyes, and we value that very much. But there are even deeper aspects of stealing that remain the same, whether it be in Exodus 20 or in 2020. And that is the feeling of being violated when something is taken from you. I think the emotional impact of being stolen from is often worse than losing a possession. Rochelle and I have good friends who uh, just in the past couple years had their apartment broken into while they were in home. Uh, My friend actually had, uh, I think, one of those Nest cameras in the apartment that was attached to his iPhone. And so he gets an alert, and sure enough, from his desk at work, he logs into his phone and watches someone going from room to room in his apartment, right? Walking around, hoodie, mask, can't see uh, kind of who they are, but just see this person going through their home. By the time he was able to alert, uh, you know, either the apartment uh, complex's security, um, uh, he had left, ended up not being able ever to find him. And, and the reality was, in talking to him after that, the guy didn't even take that much, right? There was maybe a couple electronics, but just by and large, just not that much in terms of value, uh, monetary value. But I remember um, kind of texting with him days later and him saying to me, you know what, Aaron? My wife and I underestimated how hard it was going to be to recover from this emotionally. The feeling of being violated in the very place that you want to be safest. That it was messing with them in ways that they hadn't either even anticipated, right? They, they were just thinking about being stolen from and robbed in terms of physical possessions. But this is the deeper element of stealing, an emotional violation. In this way, stealing is a form of oppression, of, again, dehumanizing someone else and feeling empowered over them so you can just take from them. Which is why, again, bears repeating, when Jesus came, just as it was with murder, he came with the intention not to take from you, but to give to you. I wonder if sometimes you view Jesus as somebody who robs you of your freedom or robs you from your joy or he just wants to take and take and take. But Jesus came to give. Above all else, to give of himself and his own life. 
That's the beauty and the scandal of the gospel. That victory came by giving, not by taking. Ushering in the upside-down kingdom. Word number eight, don't steal. All right, we got two left. Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Word number nine, no false witness. Uh, Growing up, you might have learned this ninth commandment or ninth word as, quote, you shall not lie, which is true, but that word lie doesn't encompass all that this word is conveying. And that God is using and invoking courtroom language, right? Kind of justice language to live your life, that you are under the law and under the vow to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I mean, today we would all affirm that we want justice systems that are made up of courts where the truth reigns supreme. We don't want money to reign supreme in our courts or power or coercion, but we want truth to reign supreme. This is the aspect of the kind of relativistic age that we're in and the attack on the meaning of truth that I think many have not thought through. To question truth is to undermine an entire justice system that is vital to a healthy society. And in a society where truth gets devalued and money and power get overvalued, it's always going to be the marginalized people groups of our society that will suffer the worst. And if anything, this word is more important and more extensive than it was for Israel, because that nation had, again, the spoken word. And that was the, primarily for, you know, the primary form of communication. Even the written word was rarely utilized. But today, with the onset of technology, uh, your words are not just the ones that you say to other people, but the words you say and type into screens. You can text, you can email, tweet, snap, post, share, zoom, and on and on and on. And with it all, the ninth word stands, no false witness. The truth doesn't mean avoiding saying hard things. We all know that there are many times that the truth can, in fact, be the hardest thing to say. But it's to ensure that it is said in love, dripping in love, and delivered in a way that doesn't seek to expose or embarrass and so much more we could say here um, but last summer I did an entire sermon out of the book of preview proverbs on the wisdom of words but suffice it to say we, we, we can just kind of examine ourselves with a couple of questions how do you speak to others and about others would you be comfortable in having a recording around your neck for an entire week and then played back to all those that you care most about at the end of the week? How much of your day consists of talking about other people when they aren't there? How much of your dialogue with others is spent talking about others? If you were to remove that conversation, what would be left? A couple things to consider. And in all things, we look to Christ, who told the truth always, and who never cowered from saying the hard things, 
and never dehumanized someone by gossiping about them. But he spoke truth, even to the point where it cost him his life. All right, we got one word left. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Word number 10, no coveting. This final word consists of more words in the Hebrew than commandments 6 through 9 combined. Because where the other commands towards neighbor regulate action, this final one regulates desire. And therefore, it is in many ways the most difficult to obey. Covetousness desires what other people have. And it is rooted in the discontentment of what God may have given to others, but not to us. And the detail kind of provided by God um, in this word mirrors the detail of the fourth word on the Sabbath. So just as God commands rest for all the nation of Israel, so God forbids covenanting toward all the nation of Israel. And similar to the words that um, flow from our heart in taking the Lord's name in vain or bearing false witness, so too, covenanting is not merely about things. It's not merely about wanting other things. It's not just about the house. It's not just about the neighbor's wife or the ox or anything. It's about the condition of our hearts. That at our core, we are ungrateful. We're dissatisfied. And therefore, we just kind of look around and we see other things that are not ours and we desire them and we look to them to complete our joy. Indeed, this final word explains the first sin. That after the serpent tempted Eve, we read in verse 6, quote, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Desire is not the problem. God created us with desires, even strong desires. But desire turns evil when it's fixed on the wrong things. Word number 10, no coveting. And that concludes the 10 words. A deep dive on the 10 words across two sermons, over an hour of explanation for what Jesus summed up in a single sentence. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The key to the ten words in this father-son talk between God and Israel, the key to it is not white-knuckled obedience. It's not saying, okay, we'll do it, we'll figure it out. It was not begrudging submission to authority and feeling boxed in or feeling limited or that he's taking the power from you. 
the key Jesus reveals is love. Love for God. A love for neighbor. Because of what God has already done in your life. For He has brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He has freed them from bondage. And so love God and love neighbor. And yet, I'll be honest, in a certain sense, my aim in these two sermons is that you would feel a certain heaviness to these words. A feeling like, man, you cannot obey these ten words in your own strength. If you can picture it, it'd be like starting with word number one of you standing and just a weight being put on your shoulder. And then with each word, it was just another weight, another cinder block, another weight. And even if you felt like you were barely still standing going into the final word, the Lord says, okay, now I claim all your desires, not just your actions. I know it didn't take until the 10th word to crush me, but no one is left standing after the 10th word. No one claims they can follow that standard. What if I told you that was the point all along? That this is the good news of the ten words. That God never intended for us to stand on our own in the first place. He designed us to be in relationship with Him, to have complete reliance upon Him. What if I told you that this is why he sent his son Jesus in the first place. To live the perfect life that we couldn't, and to then to die the death that we deserved. So that when our hearts taste and see that Jesus is the answer, and we repent of our sin, and believe in him, that it is then that we can be adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. And then from there, by his grace and the power of the Spirit within us, he empowers our obedience to these words. Imperfect for sure, but growing. And so this is the aim for everybody who is watching this right now. First, that you would believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that you would trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then to see every aspect of your life through the rest of your journey, through this lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to ask the question, how does the gospel impact the way I view categories like family and marriage? and violence, and sex, and material possessions, and words, and desires. Nothing is left untouched by the ten words, which is to say, nothing is left untouched by salvation of Jesus Christ. Church, in Christ, love God, and love neighbor, and do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Exodus 20, we thank you for how it reveals, how it convicts, 
and how ultimately it points us to your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would place our faith in you and then see our entire lives, every section, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let it be for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.